span of maybe a couple of months, I saw her transform from this person that I knew in elementary school to this new junior high student with a new circle of friends. And at first, I remember, because I had, I think, one or two classes with her, at first, I could see that she was sort of putting on a show to gain some friends. Like, she was kind of figuring it out, okay, who are individuals who I can hang out with, and kind of the cool crowd, and, and, and what do I need to do to impress them, and maybe make sure that I have a few people to sit with during lunchtime. And because, really, she was in the same boat as I, and she, she only knew a couple of people, it's not like anyone could call her on it and say, hey, you're a phony, remember in fourth grade, you're the one that pooped your pants, like, you know, you're a loser, sort of thing. She couldn't, it was a clean slate, right? People talk about that when you move or you go to college. No one knows who you are. It's kind of do-over. You can become anyone and anything you want to become. So I saw her in the first month or two. She, she kind of started to hang out with this different crowd of people. And I thought, that's interesting. You know, th- those aren't really the type of friends that I would think that she would align herself with. But surely, you know, after a little bit of time, I started to see her interact with these people. And I thought to myself, wow, you know, this is... This is odd. I, I didn't see this coming. Now, I don't want to speculate. I, I don't know psychoanalysis, and I can't go into the details. Maybe she had things going on in her family situation that, that made it a bit more troubled. Maybe someday she just woke up and she said, you know what? I'm going to be interested in designer jeans, and I'm going to develop a sassy attitude, and these are the friends I'm going to hang out with. Like those, that could have been possible. But what I think is more realistic is she started to hang out with these individuals, and these individuals started to influence her a little bit. And slowly but surely, her focus on studies didn't really matter all that much, and she developed kind of a disrespectful attitude towards teachers, and she put on this front that she wasn't very intelligent uh, because that was kind of the mode of her friends. And all of a sudden, she didn't go from putting on an act like she did at the beginning. She started to change. She started herself to kind of morph into this new person. And in the span of a year or two through junior high, all of a sudden I thought, "This, this girl who I once knew, she's totally different. Her thoughts were different, her looks were different, her focus, her priorities. Everything was a little bit different because of the influence of her friends. She she had just shifted just a little bit. And you know what? This isn't really a foreign concept, the fact that friends have have influence on us. I think it's probably something that that you've experienced in your own life. I know I've experienced it in my life. Uh, When I I was growing up in my, my student years, in high school, I was pretty much a gym rat. Like, I, I played sports all the time. The, my biggest things that I read, the only things that I read really, were Sports Illustrated, the sports section of the newspaper, and occasionally some of the Bible. That was it. That's what I read. And, and that was my behavior. And I came up to school, and, and all of a sudden I started interacting with, with other guys, and they would read for fun. These people would read things. And I'm like, I've never even heard of these novels that you're talking about, and you're reading them. And all of a sudden, a couple months later, I find myself in the library reading novels that weren't even part of my course curriculum. And I remember a couple, a couple uh, years after that, one time we were at a family gathering, and after I left, my mom relayed a conversation she had with one of my cousins. And one of the cousins said to, to my mom, what's with Keith? It's like he's, he's grown serious or something. Like, what happened to the kid who, who ate Cheetos and laughed at everything? Well, apparently he went to school and made a bunch of friends with nerds. Like, that's just transformation, right? And that's the point is that the, the people that we, that we interact with, our circle of friends, they have a high, high influence on us. They can, they can change us. They can influence how we think and, and what we're interested in. I'm sure it's probably happened to you before where, 
people that, that you've either been roommates with or, or family members or work colleagues, when you start to enter in a new circle of friends, all of a sudden your ideas begin to shift a little bit. Then your behavior begins to shift a little bit. And all of a sudden you've transformed slightly as an individual. And really this is a principle, this is one of the reasons why we chose to make friendship our teaching series because we realize how important friendship is. And we looked at the scriptures and the scriptures give us wisdom about the people you align yourself with, how much this can change you personally. And we've looked not just at, at the, the influence of friendship, but what a biblical view of friendship looks like. The fact that these are the people who pick you up when you fall down. These are the people who you give permission to speak into your life, who can call you on things, who can rebuke you on things, as Pastor Brad was speaking about last week. And so this concept that friendships have a huge, huge influence on us should probably be nothing new to us. And here within Jericho Ridge, we, we call it as one of our core values. We name it as authentic community. This idea that if we want to further in our friendship with God, if we want to further our relationship with Him, then we need people alongside us who are not just going to be nice people to us, but who are actually going to shape us, who are actually going to help us strive to live better lives. It's one of our values here at the church. But today, though, I want to look at this, this same friendship concept, the same thing we've been looking at the last four weeks, and I want to apply it to a different realm because we've talked about interpersonal friendship. We've talked about friendships between men and women and, and, and men and men and women and women and what that looks like on an interpersonal basis and say, what's a healthy friendship? When we talk about investing in people's lives, iron sharpening iron, what does this look like? And today I want to take that, uh, that same concept and I want to look at it with our relationship with God and say, okay, if, if friendships change us, interpersonal friendships change us, what does our relationship or friendship with God do? Does that change us? How does it change us? If it does, why does it change us? What, what, what are sort of the steps of looking how that to change us? But you know, it's a much more complicated question than just a, no, our friendship with God doesn't change us, or, or yes, it does. We know that. It's biblical. It's easy. You know, move on. A couple of summers ago, the summer 2008, some of you may recognize this book title. We do a summer book club every summer. And the book that we decided to choose is a book called Unchristian book called Unchristian, What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity. And the authors of this book are researchers. And specifically, they wanted to ask the question, 16 to 29-year-old Americans, this young new generation of Americans, we want to find out what their perception of Christians are. We want to know what they think about Christians. Are these great loving people? Are they generous to the poor? Are, are they fixated on truth? Or what are some of the results that come up? And, and, and if you've been part of Jericho over the last couple of years, you've probably heard us refer to this book because it has a lot of good research in it. And probably not surprisingly, the perception of Christianity needs a, needs a serious makeover. There's a number of things that pops into people's minds right away when they think about Christians, and none of it is actually very positive at all. But this, this concept of are we changed by our relationship with God, it's addressed right here in this paragraph I want to read. It's in the chapter called hypocritical, because that was the, one of the primary things that people saw as a perception of Christianity. When I think Christian, I think hypocritical. And this is what the authors found. In virtually every study we conduct, representing thousands of interviews every year, born-again Christians fail to display much attitudinal or behavioral evidence of transformed lives. For instance, based on a study released in 2007, we found that most of the lifestyle activities of born-again Christians 
were statistically equivalent to those of non-born against. And he goes through a list of a number of things, such as consulting a medium or a psychic, or betting or gambling, physically fighting, abusing someone, consuming alcohol to the point of drunkenness, uh, visiting pornographic websites and all those sorts of things, speaking and slandering people behind their backs. And he comes to this conclusion. He says, statistically speaking, as a researcher would say, if these two groups of people were in two separate rooms and you were asked to determine, based on their lifestyles alone, what we see, which room contained the, quish, the Christians, you'd be hard-pressed to find much difference. So the data that we see, and again, you know, this is Americans, right? So we can just kind of push it off on, on these individuals. But the, 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 statistics, the statistics that we see here say, you know what? Actually, there may not be that much difference. There might be a, a, a big a relational difference between when we have friends interact with each other. That's a high level of influence. But maybe when, when people have a friendship with God and, and have a relationship with God, data-wise, maybe there really isn't that much difference. So we ask this question again. How does God change us? Does he change us? Did God change the individuals that he interacted with in the Old Testament? What about in the New Testament? The followers of Jesus, they stumbled quite a bit. What does that dynamic look like? And perhaps more importantly, how or does your relationship with God change you? How does that change you? Well, I want to look at a couple of stories this morning, and the first story is from a, probably my favorite book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. And I don't have the, the, the notes up there on the screen. I saw this earlier in the week. Hello, my name is Friend of Sinners. <laughs> I wish I could say that personally, but that's actually a, a reference to Jesus. But our, our message this morning focuses on friendship with God, friendship with Jesus, and what this looks like. And I want to look at the book of Exodus. So if you have your Bibles, flip to Exodus chapter 33, because there's a unique passage here. I'm just going to go over it quickly. But why I want to raise it up is because Moses is said to have had a relationship with God that looked like a friendship between one man to another. And so this is uh, Exodus chapter 33, verses 7 through 11. I'm just going to summarize what happens here. Basically, Moses is the leader of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel, they have their camp. And what would happen is Moses would take his personal tent. He would go outside quite a distance from the the rest of the camp, and he would pitch his tent. And then he would go and he would interact with God. And the text says that this cloud would descend, representing God's presence, and Moses would interact with God. And the rest of the people in the camp, they didn't go to this tent. They just kind of looked in their tent, and they were in awe. And they actually worshipped God with what was happening because they did not have that privilege of being able to go out there and interact with God himself. And what we see in that text, this is verse 11, it says, The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. So we have this character, Moses, who is identified as having this unique friendship with God. And what I want to look at is just one chapter over, chapter 34, verse 29. And uh, listen carefully to to this, because this is really kind of pinpoints this question of what does change? What does this friendship of God look like? So Moses, he interacts with God. He gets to see God's glory, which is is an awesome story in the rest of chapter 33. Moses is then asked by God, "Why why don't you make two new stone tablets, go up the Mount of Sinai, And then God himself, he actually etched in the new Ten Commandments because Moses broke the first set in his anger over 
Israel's sin, and then he descended back down the mountain, back to his people. So chapter 34, verse 29, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, those are the Ten Commandments, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back on over his face until he went in to speak to the Lord. So what we have here is we have Moses interacting with God. And because of this interaction, his face is radiating. That's, that's what our, our text shows us. Now this is a really... Um, this is kind of a, a fun little thing, and, and maybe only four people are going to find this interesting, but I'm one of them. So, so in the Hebrew, I don't know Hebrew, but amazingly, the tenant who rents down in our, in our basement, she is fluent in Hebrew. So this is great. I knocked on her door yesterday afternoon. I said, can you double check this? Because I've heard this in some of my studies. just want to verify this. In Hebrew, the name that's, the word here that's translated shine or radiate, it's actually the same word that's used for horns. Crazy, huh? Like horns. Why, what were the Hebrew people thinking when they did that? Probably the same thing we do in English when we use two words and they mean nothing, but we use the same word for it. So anyhow, literally what this means, it's something protruding out of the face is what, what she told me. Now the context really doesn't seem like horns would be the best fit there because we see that a veil is over the face and it's actually what it is. It's the, the glory of God that's being pushed out of Moses through his face, shining for the other Israelites to see, and it's too bright for them to see. But some of you may be interested in art and sculptures. You may have seen, back in the time of the Renaissance, depictions of Moses with horns. Has anyone ever seen this? We've got a picture up here. This is Michelangelo's Moses. He has, see those little horns out there? It was actually quite a common thing because some of the translators, they, just, they, they rushed through it and they said, oh, Horns. Moses had horns, and so they wanted to make sure they were correct to the biblical text, and they didn't necessarily do their homework on the context of that text. And sure enough, they said, Moses' interaction with God changed him so much, this guy developed horns. Now, all, all these years, you guys just thought, some people thought Moses was the devil and gave him these, these little horns. It actually comes, actually comes from this text. But the point being here that this interaction with Moses and God this friendship, this face-to-face connection, it altered Moses physically, which is a pretty interesting, pretty interesting first step that we have here in our search together. So much, though, that Moses' physical appearance is altered every time he spends time with God, and it's actually not Moses himself, it's God's glory who's being radiating, coming out of his face because of his interactions with God. Now, this is our first clue. This is our first clue that our divine friendship, interactions with God, friendship with God, divine friendship is actually similar in change to that of relational human-to-human interaction and friendship. 
But this, this topic gets a lot better, and it might get a little bit more complicated. We're going to move to the New Testament now. I want to fast forward a couple of hundred years because I, I wanted to point this out because it's very unique. Moses is really the only individual in Scripture who says that he interacts and talks with God as a man would talk to another God. But his son, Jesus Christ, the, the full, complete embodiment of God, this is the complete representation of God in human form, he speaks about friendship too. And we should remember that Jesus was very unique in the sense that he kind of redefined friendship. He was an individual who didn't just hang out with people who were well-liked and socially acceptable. This was an individual who pursued people and he interacted with people because he wanted to be friends with them. He accepted them. He pursued them for his purposes as God the Father in, in human flesh. And so often in the Gospels, we hear these stories where Jesus interacts with Samaritans. He interacts with women. He interacts with the socially unacceptable. He interacts with tax collectors. He interacts with sinners. And he's spoken of as a friend of sinners. So he starts to, to shift this idea of what friendship actually looks like. And he begins to show himself as saying, I will be a friend to others. I will pursue people for friendship based on myself alone. And the text that I want to look at is John chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles with you, please tune, turn to John chapter 15. John's the fourth gospel. This passage, chapter 15, is an amazing passage. If you're looking for a passage of Scripture to memorize and you're looking for, for something that's going to be helpful, I would strongly recommend you look at this passage and begin to meditate on this and begin to memorize this because it's an incredible picture of God's love, his relationship to Jesus, and then their relationship to his followers, to his disciples. And in our, our context here, for those of us who have chosen to give our life to the Lord and follow him, his relationship to us. And in those first a few verses, they may sound familiar to, them, to you as you scan through your Bible. Jesus sets up a, an analogy, and he says, here's, here's what this looks like. He's speaking to his disciples. He's been talking to them for a long time, and he says, I, the Father, God the Father, he's like a gardener. He's a farmer, and I am a grapevine. I, Jesus, am a grapevine, and what happens is that those who decide to remain in me, those who follow me, those who are my true disciples, they're actually branches. They're branches off of the grapevine, which is me. And what happens is when you remain in me, when you abide in me, and uh, when you do what I command, when you do all these things, you will produce fruit. And when you produce fruit, the gardener, God in this case, he's well pleased and he's glorified. So he sets out this kind of picture of the relationship uh, between everyone here. And uh, what he begins to say then uh, further on is he begins to look at this relationship a little bit further. He talks a little bit more about the vine, a little bit more about the branches. And I want to start in, in verse 9 to give us some context here. He says, I've loved you even as the Father has loved me. Now remain in my love. That's going to be important later on. Uh, make sure you keep your finger on that. Verse 10, he says, when you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I've told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way that I have loved you. Now, before we go any further, I want to give some uh, verbal credit to a couple of, of people that I referred to during the week. One is Andy Stanley, who's spoken on this text. He's a pastor down the, the Atlanta, Georgia area with North Point Ministries. And the other is uh, an author 
down at Baylor. Her name's Gail O'Day. And they both looked at this patches and they've seen a number of interesting things that hopefully I can communicate in half the way that, that they did to me earlier in this week. And, and I want to start here in verse 13 because this is really when Jesus starts to interact with this terminology of friendship. And this is what he says. There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friend. No greater love. Love cannot be any greater than for an individual to lay down his or her life for their friend. Now, some of you may remember that the Apostle Paul, he says almost this exact same thing in the book of Romans. He says that some people might be willing to die for a good man. Or, sorry, he says actually not many people would be willing to die for a good man. Although some people might be willing to die for an especially good person. And I've read that several times and I've always thought, who are these people? Like, I, I've got friends. I don't think I would die for them. Sorry for those of you who if we get in that circumstance. I'm going to think about it a couple of times. And, and just the terminology that Paul uses, you know what, but for, that for an especially good man, someone might die. I've always thought, that's, that's a bit odd. And Jesus kind of says it here. You know, the greatest form of love, the greatest form is a friendship saying, I'm going to give up my life for you. That's the greatest form of love. And I've always just thought this is something I can't relate to. Well, I found out earlier in this, in, in this week that friendship, just like other things in life and in, in our society, just as our perspective of parenting and marriage and uh, vocation, all these concepts through different cultures and throughout time, they morph. They change a little bit. The ideal marriage back in the 1600s looks very different than the ideal marriage does now. And the same thing is true with friendship. So, uh, according to, to the sources that I looked at, back in the first century, this was actually a very common idea. That the ideal for friendship was laying down your life for a friend. Now, this doesn't mean that it happened a lot. It probably didn't happen any more back then than it does now. But this was kind of the picturesque scene of what friendship looked like. And so poets would write about it, and Socrates and Plato and all those smart people, we have pictures of statues up. They would write about this and they would say, oh, this is what friendship looks like. And Jesus really is, he's basically buying into the same cultural norm. He says there, there's love, really, there's no greater picture of it than to lay down one's life for a friend. That's, that's what he's saying here. But the interesting thing here is now Jesus, as we, as we see and as the disciples will witness just a, a few days later, Jesus then embodies this idea. So he takes this, this standard cultural norm that people are like, oh yeah, yep, that makes sense. That's, that's what true love is. And he repeats it and he says, this is true. But then he, in fact, enacts it. He willingly dies for other people who he considers friends, but people like you and I who, who didn't even know at, our, at, at the time that we were in need of a Savior, don't even know that we were sinful. And Jesus says, this is my act of friendship towards you. And, and by doing so, he himself, Jesus becomes the ideal friend. He becomes the ultimate expression of friendship. There's no greater friend, no greater friend than Jesus. That's verse 13. We want to continue on and look at, at verse 14 because he continues on with this concept of friendship. And so what he says there in verse 14 is, you are my friends. So finally we get down to the, to the nitty gritty here and, and he says, this is how it is. You are my friends if you do what I command. Now, on the surface, this seems like, a, like an if-then statement. It looks quite black and white. It actually feels a little bit conditional, doesn't it? 
if you are obedient, if you obey the commands of Jesus, then you will be my friends. But in the very next verse that we're going to look at now, verse 15, it looks like he removes this condition right back again. He says that he no longer calls them slaves or servants, but now he considers them friends. So he puts out this clause of saying, you you, you need to obey me in order to be my friends. But the very next verse, he says to his disciples, I no longer call you servants because a master doesn't confide in his servants or his slaves. Now you are my friends. Why? Since I've told you everything the Father has told me. So Jesus right away says, you are my friends strictly because everything that God has revealed to me, I've communicated with you. I've disclosed everything. We, we have a, a friendship. We have this unique friendship because you know all about who I am and what I'm about. And over the, the course of the Gospels, we get a sense that slowly the dis- disciples are figuring this out. They're starting to figure out what the kingdom of God looks like. Uh, they, they still are confused, but they're getting a, a better sense of it. They're starting to come to this fact that, that Jesus really is the Son of God. This is a Messiah. This is the chosen one. And because of all these things, Jesus says, I've confided in you. You understand truth. I've, I've empowered you with this truth. I've disclosed everything. You are now my friends. Friendship, we see, is dictated by Jesus. Friendship's dictated by Jesus. He is the one who calls others friends. He's the one who embodies the true model of friendship. He's the one who initiates this. It's his choice. And we see that in verse 16, the very next verse. He says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. I chose you as my friend. Now, friendship language we begin to see here is actually salvation language. This actually is morphing into a language of sanctification and reconciliation and and all these words, redemption, salvation, that we love to use in the, in the Christian community. And some of you may be thinking, wow, this is really cute. You know, Keith's used this, this friendship series, and now we go from friendships with interpersonal people, and now we just say, oh, let's do friendship with God. And we kind of use this postmodern term, friendship with God, and that sounds a lot more, a little bit more happy, a little bit less stressed out than sort of a personal relationship with God. Or, or, and, and you know what we see here in the biblical text? This is actually a biblical sense of what a relationship with Jesus looks like. He coins it in the terms of friendship. It's friendship. And he will do anything and everything to pursue that friendship, to have others say, yes, I will be a friend with you, Jesus. I will take these steps to be a friend with you. And we're going to find out what that is in just a moment. You think about the Gospels where he paints this picture of, of a shepherd and there's just one sheep that, that goes astray and the shepherd goes after that one sheep. We think of Jesus saying, I came here to seek and save the lost. And we get a sense that this is friendship language. This is Jesus saying, I pursue those far from me and I bring them in. I initiate. It's my choice. I choose you. But what we see in this very next verse, and, and this, is, this is where we key on, is, is we key in at this, this very next verse, is that there is a, an appointment of the people who Jesus is talking to. He says, I didn't, or you didn't choose me, I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father would give you whatever you ask for using my name. That's verse 16. I appointed you, Jesus says. I appointed you, and what I appointed you for is to produce fruit. That's what you're here for. You're my friends, 
And what you need to do, what I want you to do, what's going to provide you with joy, what's going to provide you with fulfillment is to produce fruit. And all of a sudden, this analogy that he began the beginning of the chapter with comes right back to the end of it. And we go back to the full cycle. And so I want to look back up to this analogy. And we have this sense we have God the gardener, remember, and, and, and we've got Jesus who's the grapevine. And the text says that those who remain in the vine, those who remain in Jesus will produce fruit. And through the first eight verses of John chapter 15, Jesus talks about fruit six times. Fruit, 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 fruit. Not six, right? Fruit, 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 fruit. Fruit. He talks about fruit. So if friendship with Jesus is about producing fruit, if that's a mark of friendship with Jesus, how do we do it? How do we produce fruit? This is exactly what we were talking about at the beginning of the message. If our interactions with people, if they change us, and then our interactions with God, if our friendship with God, if our relationship with Jesus is going to change us, really we're talking about producing fruit. How do we do it? How in the world can we do it? Because I know for myself, it's really hard to produce fruit. You try to produce fruit, you try different strategies, you turn over a a new leaf, you think, I'm going to try harder to produce fruit, someone else can help me produce fruit, but you know what, you get in those same situations, and you find yourself sinning, you find yourself letting yourself down, and Jesus talks about fruit, 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 fruit. How do we produce fruit? This is the most important thing, so if if you've fallen asleep, please wake up. This is the the main thing that I want to communicate to you this morning. Jesus tells us how we can produce fruit. He tells us how, and this is how. Remain in me. Remain in me. Friendship with God is about remaining in him. Remaining in him. The text says, anyone who remains in me and I in them will produce much fruit. Now, if you have difficulty remembering three words, remain in him, the great translators of the, of the King James Version and the New American Standard Version and, and the ESV and, and I'm sure a bunch of other versions, they've condensed remain in him to just one word. You know what that word is? Anyone have it here? Abide. Abide. That's it. That's the key to producing fruit. Abide. You want to have a friendship with Jesus? What does that look like? You abide. You remain in him. You abide. And that word is actually a very, very normal word in the New Testament Greek. Nothing special about it. Nothing super spiritual or religious. It's not unique. It's all over in the scriptures. And basically what it means is it it means to stay put, to stay close, to remain, to stay in that, that, that small spot there. Abide. Remain in me. And Jesus says, this is the simple formula, guys. You remain in me. You abide. You stay put. You stay close to my vine. And you know what? you're going to produce fruit. But the key is just like what we saw back with Moses. It's not you producing fruit. It's the vine. It's Jesus producing fruit through you. You don't do anything. You're just a branch. You just hang off this vine and you do what branches do. And the vine's the one that does it. And all of a sudden, fruit. Fruit comes out. But remember the text says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. How do we produce fruit? We remain in him. We abide. What do we do to strengthen our friendship with Jesus? We abide. We stay put. We stay close. We remain in him. 
How do we persevere when times are tough? What do we do when we face adversity and temptation and all these struggles? What do we do? We abide. We remain in Him. And the promise that Jesus says is, when you remain in Me, you're going to produce fruit. You not yourself, but Me three through you. It's like Moses' face radiating, protruding. This change starts to happen. This transformation starts to happen. And it comes in the form of fruit. And it becomes because we're attached as a branch to the vine. We abide. And when we produce fruit, when we produce fruit in this teaching that Jesus shows, we prove that we're his disciples. We prove that we're connected. Because apart from him, we can produce no fruit whatsoever. We prove that we are his followers. And not only that, but we give glory to the gardener. God the gardener comes and he sees all this fruit coming off the vine. And he says, yes, I've got fruit. That's what grape vines are for, to produce fruit. And these vines, they're, they're connected. They're, or excuse me, the branches are connected to this vine. And everything's producing fruit. And we produce fruit by remaining in him. We produce fruit by abiding Friendship with God changes us, but it only changes us when we choose to abide in Him. Now, I want to give you a very simple application today. It's one word for, uh, for the, the point of the message, and that's abide. Friendship with God means remaining in Him. Abide. I hope you can remember that one word. Abide, 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 and you'll get fruit. The application, though, if you're anything like me, it's hard to abide. If you're anything like me, you go into life thinking, I'm going to have a good day. This is going to happen. And, and I, I can do this. And you rely on your sheer willpower. You rely on your own strength. You rely on your own gifts. You rely on your own knowledge and your past history. And you think, I can do this. And the text says, when you do that, you're not really attached to the vine. You're doing it on your own. And you can't produce any fruit that way. And I have found in the course of my life that the times in my life when I've been faced with incredible adversity and circumstances, those are the times when I'm most likely to say, God, I can't do this. I'm going to fail miserably. I've got to have your help. Because I already know this is not going to go well. And I think those are the times that God uses to, to truly make himself known through me and to truly produce fruit. But it happens when I give up that control. It happens when I said, I can't, but you can. And so this week, as you prepare for, for the different things that you have coming, whether it's family coming tonight or tomorrow, and, and that family member that's, that's difficult and that puts a strain on your self-control, whether it's that work project that you have coming up and you feel the stress and the anxiety base behind that, whether it's the, the mortgage payment that's coming up on Thursday and you think, how in the world am I going to do this? What can I do? How can I figure this out myself? I want you to remind yourself, I can't, but he can. I can't do this on my own, and so I'm going to choose to abide. I'm going to choose to remain in him. I can't, but you can. Lord, help me to abide. Let's pray together. Father God, we, we thank you for these stories. We recognize, God, that these are stories of truth. We recognize, Lord, that just as one individual can have an impact on another individual, so you change our lives. Your scriptures say that you transform us. We sung about this morning, God. 
about how you form our hearts, how you transform our minds. We want to conform our wills to your will, Lord. We want to abide. Help us to remain in you. God, we, we're tired of, of trying to do this on our own. We fail when we try to do it on our own. Your text says that, that when we try to do it on our own, we produce no fruit. Help us to align ourselves with you, God. Help us to rely on your grace and your strength to sustain us and produce fruit. This is our prayer, God. Amen.